The sounds of success vary from person to person. Over to second in time on the first double play. Success sounds like this to a Credenz soybean grower. When you pick Credenz, you get a precise variety that fits your field. A variety built to work in your soil type and conditions with targeted traits for local pest and disease pressures. Earning the satisfaction of a successful soybean crop, that's smart. Talk to your authorized Credenz retailer or local BASF seed advisor. Always read and follow label directions. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Good morning, everybody. I'm Rusty Halverson, filling in for Mike Adams this week. We've got a good show ahead for this Wednesday. First off, though, we start off with Brian Winnikins, Durand, Wisconsin, at 14.30 a.m. WRDN, Real Country, our AOA affiliates in that beautiful neck of the woods. Brian, everybody's wondering, uh, a big question, anybody turning any wheels in your neck of the woods uh with all of the rain we've had unless your combine has uh pontoons it's been sure. tough to say the least uh, <laughs> yeah. we did have some good weather over the weekend weather over a couple of uh, saturday afternoon and then sunday but then once this week started it's uh one to two inches of rain and it's just made things really come to a standstill yeah now the last time uh, we were able to visit uh, we were both in uh, rugby north dakota wolford north dakota celebrating a wedding with sabrina and uh, you were kind enough to come and and uh, help us uh, celebrate and i think uh, you you showed up in north dakota just the right time of year end of september because things have certainly taken a turn for the worse since you visited up here uh, yeah, uh, actually, I think, if I'm not mistaken, two weeks later, uh, rugby was not the, the center of the three feet of snow. Thankfully, we yeah. didn't get any of anything like that. Um, but the, the weather really this fall has been a challenge. We're, we're, everybody's still running behind, not only in the growing season, um, but also in the harvest. And, and really, most of the corn has just stopped. It, it's just because of the weather. Um, very few fields have any green left in them. And one of the big concerns that we have found creeping up, I was talking with our BASF representative for Northwest Wisconsin uh, on a Tuesday, and um, we, she found uh, some tar spot uh, in some uh, cornfields uh, near Mondovi, uh, just to our east uh, this past weekend. And that is a concern that means that that could be starting to move up from uh, northern Illinois and southern Wisconsin into uh, central uh, Wisconsin and western Wisconsin. So that's definitely something we're going to have to watch here, uh, especially next year. Yeah, yeah. Now, when you got back from North Dakota, didn't you have to turn around and get to World Dairy Expo, attend that? How did everything go there, Brian? Expo, uh, there, there was, uh, Expo was well attended. Um, the weather was, eh, it was okay. The biggest the biggest thing that came out of Expo was the, really the, the misinformation about um, what Secretary Sonny Perdue had, had said during a news conference. I, w- I attended that news conference. In fact, I was standing next to Secretary Perdue, and uh, the reporter that, that wrote this story was the one that asked two questions about small dairy farms uh, versus big dairy farms. Mm-hmm. And um, Secretary Perdue did, did at no time say, uh, you have to get big or get out. Uh, he did okay. not say that at all. Um, the, the secretary was, was really making an observation of the dairy industry, of what's been happening over many years, which what is, what's really happened in a lot of industries, not just in agriculture, but I will use the radio industry. Sure. There has been a lot 
of consolidation in the radio industry over the years. Um, but no one, um, the FCC has never said, well, you have to get big or get out. Mm -hmm. The secretary did not say that. And, and in fact, the second question that the reporter asked was, well, are things uh, changing now where small farms have to get big or get out? This, the reporter that said that, and the secretary's response was, that is going to be up to each individual dairy farmer. Sure. Um, so that story that came from um, that reporter that came out of World Dairy Expo really was not um, correct in what the secretary was saying. Okay. Now, uh, just a, a broad generalization, but do you think the secretary, does, does he sometimes catch a little bit of flack from the mainstream press for the things that the Agriculture Department is trying to do or things that are underway? Uh, some of uh, some of the mainstream press just sometimes doesn't get it, or is that too broad of a generalization? I would say here in Wisconsin, there, a lot of the, the, the media that was even at that news conference, and there were plenty of farm broadcasters there, but the, the TV media, uh, which would be considered quote-unquote mainstream, they were asking some very legitimate questions and, and had knowledge, especially of the USMCA or of uh, immigration issues, uh, that sort of thing. This reporter has been an agricultural reporter before for uh, a newspaper in Wisconsin. So he didn't understand. Yeah. Um, I, I, I do believe that, that there was uh, a lot of, um, I don't want to say misinformation, but just they just didn't connect the dots. They didn't re-listen to what the secretary had said before a second news conference was held to, in, in reaction to the secretary's comments, and farm broadcasters weren't even invited to that. I hmm. didn't even know about it until later in the day. Hmm. Um, um, so it, it was it's one of those things where it just it, it didn't... Um, if everyone had re-listened to what the secretary had said and the questions that were asked, sure. they never would have come to this conclusion. Yeah, yeah. Well, looking at the calendar, Brian, uh, the week ahead on Saturday, I was looking at uh, your calendar on uh, 1430 AM WRDN in Durand, Wisconsin, and you've got the Rock Creek Ufta dinner coming up on Saturday. Lefsa, Norwegian meatballs, and now you're really speaking to my heart with something like that. <laughs> and, and, and the best part is no lutefisk. Oh, I know, I know. Lutefisk is a take-it-or-leave-it proposition. No, no, Lutefisk is a leave-it proposition. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, yeah, that's going to be uh, that's uh, an annual fundraiser with one of our local uh, churches. And uh, mm -hmm. I I like the lefsa part of it. Sure. Uh, extra, it has to be warm, extra butter and um, sugar, and I'm... I'm you just leave me alone. Yeah. Don't touch my left side. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. And, and, Brian, you like to do dairy breakfasts on the farm, interacting with growers and stuff. Do you have anything uh, on the docket coming up for that? The, the only thing that um, we're going to be having some events coming up here a little bit later on in December. Um, Wisconsin Farm Bureau has their annual convention and all of that. One of the things that we're doing as a station, um, along with the uh, Pepin County Human Services Department and the um, Pepin County Health Department, is we're actually going to be holding some QPR uh, suicide prevention classes mm -hmm. uh, for uh, folks that work uh, with uh, farmers and, and work in agriculture. And we're going to be doing that in November of uh, this, uh, this year, uh, November 19th. Um, we're actually going to be doing two separate uh, sessions with that. Um, and so that's something that's a follow-up to our, uh, our town hall meeting on the farm crisis that we had here in in uh, may also our uh, pepin county is unique we have a farm management club 
and uh, the Farm Management Club uh, always holds a recognition dinner, and they'll be doing that here uh, in November as well. And uh, that's one, one event that's always uh, fun. We'll be uh, attending that here uh, first week of uh, November, and that's a chance to uh, thank the, uh, the Conservation Farm Family of the Year. The Land Conservation Department uh, recognizes them. Uh, we recognize an Ag Business of the Year. We also uh, recognize uh, 4-H volunteers and also uh, the uh, Dairy Breakfast host. From this year, they get recognized, and then they normally announce next year's Dairy Breakfast host, too. So that's always a lot of fun. Our visit with Brian Winnikins, WRDN, 1430 AM, Real Country in Durand, Wisconsin, about everything that's going on there. And and, uh, a good friend, a good guy, and we appreciate his time on this Wednesday. Coming up, we're going to talk about organic commodities and the outlook for production this year. I am your guest host for Mike Adams, Rusty Halverson. More coming up on AOA. Some measure success by Italian suits, corner offices, and luxury yachts. Farmers measure success differently. It's breathing fresh country air, taking care of the people you love. And knowing how to measure success in your soybean acres, that's smart. With Credence Soybeans, you get a precise variety bred to fit your acres. And that Credence variety comes with agronomic expertise and local insights from your BASF team. So plant your sign of success. Talk to your authorized Credence retailer or local BASF seed advisor. Always read and follow label directions. Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and Ad Council. Adams on Agriculture is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. With Cenex Premium Diesel, you can count on a diesel that will keep your operation in top shape. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Good morning, everybody. I'm Rusty Halverson, filling in for Mike Adams this week on AOA. Now we're going to talk a little bit about organic agriculture and the commodities outlook. We are joined now by Ryan Corey, Director of Economics at Mercaris. Ryan, how is your Wednesday going so far? Not too bad, not too bad. Uh, just sitting here looking out of my window at a gray Missouri sky. Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, I saw a report uh, from your organization recently uh, describing the production outlooks for this year, and it seems like uh, the organics industry, much like their conventional cousins, uh, spring weather taking a toll on uh, producers, and, and now we've got uh, very challenging harvest conditions for many producers this fall. What kind of an outlook are we are we looking at, Ryan? Yeah, that's right. You know, in a lot of ways, the concerns that the organic fa- uh, industry is facing are very similar to what you're seeing in the conventional sector. We had a very challenging start to the year, uh, late planting, 
uh, a, a lot of issues in terms of getting our crops in and having enough growing days to get uh, crops to maturity. And now with this weather setting in, we're having additional concerns about what yields might look like. And then ultimately, really at this point, what we're starting to worry about is what quality this crop is going to be once we are able to get it out of the field. So there's a lot of unknown factors in terms of uh, just how much our yields are going to be down this year by the time we get our crops out of the fields, but uh, we're, it's looking pretty certain that we are looking at lower yields. And on top of that, we have fewer acres planted, so we anticipate fewer harvested acres. So all in all, we do look for a reduced production outlook in the organic. I think for organic corn, we're currently estimating production will be down about 12% year yeah. year. Yeah, I was just going to mention, yeah, yeah. the, the recent, uh, recent report you had, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and then we're looking at soybeans to be down about 14% year to year. Okay, now when we talk about reductions in quality, Ryan, uh, looking ahead to 2020 and uh, uh, maybe uh, uh, the seed production that we have this year, the quality of the crop that we have, are, are you concerned at all about uh, going forward? Should we be concerned about seed supplies when we look ahead to 2020? Yeah, you know, that's a great point. Um, a lot of organic seeds produced locally as well. There's, there's less of it that gets transferred very far. Uh, and there's fewer producers of organic seed as well. So whenever you see a major weather impact such as this, I think it does bite into those organic seed supplies even more. Yeah. Uh, the organic industry does have a bit of a blow-off valve in the fact that if you can't get certified organic seed for whatever reason, say the market should be short or that there's not supplies available in your area, you can substitute in some conventional non-genetically modified seed. So we do have some relief from supplies in that respect. But in terms of what's going to be available for just genuinely organic seed for planting this spring, uh, yeah, I would definitely expect those supplies to be tighter. Yeah, so it, it, it appears, uh, Ryan, that the industry uh, will have to see some imports uh, ramp up over, over the coming years as some of our organic production has been decreased this year. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's one thing that's unique about organic compared to the conventional sector is that unlike conventional where there's been so many concerns about uh, the loss of the export market and some recovery thereof, uh, the organic sector actually is pretty reliant on imports. Uh, if we look at this last uh, marketing year, 1819, we imported somewhere around 25% of our organic corn needs and somewhere around 75 to 80% of our organic soybean needs. And so with that being the situation in the organic sector, and on top of that, we expect to see some growth in feed demand, livestock feed demand, which is the principal demand category in organics. So if you look at you know reduced production, increased demand, that definitely opens that window for imports to escalate over this next year. Okay. Now, specifically for for Macaris, how uh, how do you facilitate uh, your daily relationship uh, relationships with organic growers? What do you do, Ryan? <laughs> well, I personally, what I do primarily is I put together reports like our recent organic acreage report, and in doing that, we hold conversations with uh, industry stakeholders, whether they be farmers, which we have a network of farmers that we work with through uh, some free organic farming services that we offer. Uh, as well as a base of survey participants who uh, send data into our market price survey. Uh, and so we have a good network of people that we can call and have conversations with, and we can send surveys out to to actually get a sense of what's going on on the ground and in the markets 
uh, for the organic sector. Okay. And then with that information, we're able to go and create reports like this that kind of give that broader, you know, context-based perspective of what's going on in the market. Okay, okay. Now, organic livestock production. Uh, your report saying that growth is expected to slow, but we'll still see a 1% increase overall because of that. Imports should bridge the gap. Can you fill us in on that, Ryan? Yeah, you know, so whenever you're looking at organic, as I mentioned before, livestock is the, the primary demand, uh, has been the primary driver of demand growth. Uh, last year, or year before last, rather, I think we saw somewhere around 7% broiler growth and somewhere around 4% egg production growth. And those have been the largest areas of growth in organic livestock. Uh, organic dairy still accounts for a large portion of organic livestock feed demand. But it has actually been on a slower trend of growth, kind of like what you've seen in the conventional sector. There's some similar issues there. Uh, but this year, yeah, over 1819, we saw both dairy, or both rather, egg production and broiler production slow down. And so with that, you know, we, we still see positive growth, but at a slower rate, which in some respects will help mitigate some of those needs for imports to escalate to cover that gap. But as I alluded to before, you know, if, if you're looking at a situation where U.S. production is down, well, you know, it's, it's pretty simple math. You have less supply and more demand. That means you're going to have to fill that gap somewhere. And so that's what's opening that door for more imports. Okay. Now, Ryan, I'm going to ask you a sticky question. Uh, All right. What does it mean to you? What does it mean to you to be an organic farm? I, I mean, uh, consumers these days are bomba- uh, bombarded with a lot of different things when it comes to the grocery store. What does it mean to you, Ryan, to be an organic farm? Sure. You know, organic is one of those things that it means different things on different levels. So organic is a USDA certified product. Uh, There are specific standards and products and practices that you have to use in order to be able to carry that label that makes you USDA organic certified. Now, uh, to your question, you know, what does it mean to me to be organic? Uh, you know what? What I see from organic producers that I think is probably the most uh, the, the the most heartening is there's a lot of care about how long their farm is going to be able to be in operation and how they're going to be able to support their community. Those are two big tie-ins that I see. You know, drive a lot of organic farmers or conventional farmers rather to the organic sector because they see the growth trend in terms of where consumer demand is going. You know, In the U.S., we don't eat more food. We eat more expensive food, food that has some kind of additional value to it beyond just calories. And organic is one of those paths. And with that, you know, there's, there's increased need for uh, uh, soil conservation, and there's uh, increased need for the, the essentially the way that you manage the land. It's more labor-intensive. And all of these things, they raise the cost of producing the crop for sure, but they also they raise the value of the crop in terms of what its market value is. And they tend to build more of a network and more of a community around the farm itself. And so it tends to create more dynastic properties to it to where that farm is more sustainable and something that can be passed down to generations. So I think those are some of the better benefits that are under-discussed in organic. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, as you mentioned, uh, the product uh, costs uh, it costs more. Cost production uh, is, is more, but also you've got uh, a little bit of a price premium. And I I I, I take it from you that a, a lot of organic growers, this is a almost a lifestyle choice, just like the consumer if they like to buy organic. Yeah, you know, it's really what it comes down to is it's a farm management style. At the end of the day, a lot of what organic farmers do 
isn't new. It, it's rather old. Uh, you know, you're going back to the way that farms were ran during the, the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, before chemicals became such an integral part of uh, the farming process. And so a lot of these practices, they're, they're nothing new. It's just a new way of looking at managing your farm and adopting some older techniques. And so from that perspective, it is a bit of a lifestyle change or at least a mindset change in terms of how you approach running a farm. Um, but in a lot of ways, they're not really that much different from conventional farmers. And a lot of organic farmers, actually, they produce both. They have some acres that have converted to organic, and some they produce conventional. And so I think there's a little bit of stigma. You hear somebody, uh, I'm an organic farmer, and you have this expectation that they're wearing Birkenstock sandals and, you know. No, <laughs> no, gosh. Wearing all have clothing. But that's, that's certainly not the reality of the farmers that I've met in this Yeah. Sector. Yeah. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for your time uh, uh, today. We appreciate it very much. Thank you for the insight. Uh, uh, hope you have a good rest of, uh, rest of the week. Fantastic. Thanks. You as well. All right. Thank you very much. Ryan Corey, Director of Economics at Mercaris, talking about organic commodity production. We're going to be talking about the RFS and the SREs coming up in just a bit. I'm Rusty Halverson. Filling in for Mike Adams here on AOA. Cenex Premium Diesel comes with a more complete additive package for a more complete burn to optimize performance in all engines. The sounds of success vary from person to person. Success sounds like this to a credenced soybean grower. Along with 43 new varieties this year, credenced soybeans come with agronomic expertise from BASF. That means expert advisors who bring local insights on seed selection, management decisions, and crop protection options. Knowing the kind of success you're shooting for? That's smart. Talk to your authorized credence retailer or local BASF seed advisor. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Good morning, everybody. I'm Rusty Halverson, filling in for Mike Adams this week. A coalition of renewable fuel and agricultural trade organizations filed a petition yesterday afternoon with the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, challenging the process by which the EPA exempted certain unknown small refineries from their respective renewable fuel standard obligations for 2018. That coalition includes the American Coalition for Ethanol, Growth Energy, the National Biodiesel Board, National Corn Growers Association, National Farmers Union, and Renewable Fuels Association. Mike recently talked with Jeff Cooper of the Renewable Fuels Association about that supplemental proposal that the EPA unveiled recently regarding biofuel volumes and the renewable fuels standards. Here's a portion of that visit. Jeff, obviously a lot has changed from the October 4th, October RFS announcement to, to where we're at now. Describe your, your feelings and your thoughts about uh, where we're at now and, and the course that EPA plans to take. Well, thanks, Mike, and, and you're right. A lot can change in about 10 days' time, and, and you know, here we go. Round and round we go with EPA again. I mean, we, we had a deal 
uh, the, the president had promised that his EPA was going to follow the law in implementing the RFS in 2020. And that means when, when the number 15 billion gallons uh, gets published as the requirement for 2020, that that's what's actually going to be enforced. And there's a mechanism to do that uh, within the regulation, and, and we were all expecting and, and understanding that uh, the deal was going to be 15 billion gallons means at least 15 billion gallons in 2020. Uh, that's the deal that farmers agreed to. That's the deal that corn state senators agreed to back in September. That is not the deal that EPA announced and, and rolled out uh, earlier this week when they when they published their proposal. And the president even upped the expectation or the hopes even more by saying it could be $16 billion, And now, basically, with this plan, you can't even be assured of fifteen. Uh, that's that's exactly right, Mike, and and we were very encouraged. And and again, um, you know that the the, uh, the comment by the president that we could see up to 16 billion gallons uh, was consistent with conversations that had been had in in September and, and late part of August. Uh, so you know, again, this proposal is not consistent with those commitments. It's it's not consistent with the promises that were made, and we're very concerned that that this proposal, if it's finalized. Uh, could lead to the actual enforced RFS volumes being below 15 billion gallons again, and that's the very problem that this whole proposal and the whole deal was meant to resolve. So uh, this doesn't get us out of the out of the quagmire uh, that we've been in for the past few years, and and really it boils down to, you know, how EPA is is projecting uh, the volume of exemptions that it thinks it will grant in in 2020, and and the analogy that I've used is is, look, if, if Larry Bird scores 30 points in three straight games, are you going to assume that he's only going to score 15 points in the fourth game? Uh, you know, of course you're not. Uh, but that's exactly what EPA is, is doing here, is saying, oh, we know what exemptions have been for the past three years, uh, but we're going to ask you to trust us, and, and uh, we're going to project that we're only going to give out half as many exemptions in 2020. Uh, and I'm sorry, but there's just not that, uh, that level of trust uh, with EPA today after what we've been through the past few years. And along those lines of what EPA, would, they seemingly ignored Department of Energy recommendations on, on waivers, right. but, yet, but yet now they're, they're kind of pretending or assuming, well, let's, let's just say we did go by that, and now we'll use that uh, for guidance in the future. That makes it even more frustrating. Well, that, that, that's the real irony and, and just kind of the insult to injury uh, with this proposal is, is EPA is saying, yeah, we're going we're gonna to base our 2020 exemption projection on the average exemption volume that was recommended by DOE for the last three years. Uh, and the flaw in that is that EPA always ignored DOE's recommendations. We've been after them for years to, to pay attention to what DOE is saying on these exemption requests, and they never have. Uh, they've always ended up granting about twice as many exemptions as recommended by DOE. Uh, but now when it comes time to, to look forward and, and kind of project or anticipate what they're going to do, uh, they want to fall back on, on these DOE recommendations. And, and we just think that's ridiculous. Uh, you know, we, we spent uh, an entire year pleading with EPA and the White House to rein in the abuse of, of this small refiner exemption program. And, and how did they respond? Well, they came out on August 9th. Uh, ignored all our pleas and requests, and they granted another 31 full waivers. Uh, that that meant another 1.3 billion gallons of lost RFS demand. And, and so now they're asking us to just take a leap of faith 
and trust that they are going to rein the program in and, and listen to DOE and follow those recommendations from the Department of Energy in 2020. And, and we're just not there. We're talking with Jeff Cooper, president and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. Jeff, I mentioned this earlier. It almost feels like a good cop, bad cop situation. The president comes out and says one thing, very supportive of uh, biofuels, and then EPA comes along and does something different. Uh, I, I don't understand, I guess, why at this point, if the president really wants these things to happen that he says are going to happen for farmers and for biofuels, why he just doesn't tell EPA, this is what you have to do. I'm the boss here. Well, I, you know, honestly, Mike, I think that's that's what has happened is the, is the president has told EPA, um, look, I, I cut a deal with uh, the the senators from from these corn states, um, and and you know the deal was we're going to start following the law on, on the RFS moving forward beginning in 2020, um, and he directed EPA to to take the steps and, and write the regulations uh, to make sure that 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 happens. Um, but but EPA just it seems like they, you know they can't help themselves. They they got to figure out a way to try and put a poison pill in any anything that would be good for uh, the ethanol industry, anything that would be good for uh, biofuel producers. And and so we end up with um, you know this kind of half baked uh, proposal that that fakes it that you know that fakes that it's uh, honoring the commitment that the president made. Uh, but when you really look at it in, in detail, you, you see that it doesn't, you know, it only goes halfway there uh, and doesn't get us out of the mess that we're in. So there does continue to be this severe disconnect between the Oval Office and EPA. And, uh, you know, we feel like EPA just continues to undermine uh, the statements and commitments that the president is making on the RFS, on biofuels. Uh, and that, you know, that, that is uh, obviously hurting uh, the image and, and reducing the level of support uh, for this administration uh, amongst a very key constituency in, in the Midwest. And so uh, it's it's a problem, and, and, you know, we've got to get it fixed. It surprises me that he, he continues to allow that to happen. I mean, this this is now two administrators of that agency that this has gone on. That's right, and I think part of the problem, uh, Mike, is you know uh, the, the, the President Trump is a busy guy. He's got a lot of other things to, to worry about and a lot of other issues uh, to address, uh, and so you know he 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 assumes that uh, his directive is being followed and that uh, his guidance is being uh, adhered to, uh, and then when he finds out that that hasn't been the case, uh, you know he he calls EPA on the carpet and EPA. Uh, tells them, well, look, Mr. President, that's just the you know the farmers and the ethanol guys whining again and and wanting more, um, and and so we've got this you know this this uh, breakdown in in communication and in reality uh, between EPA and the and the White House, and it's causing some real challenges for our industry. Yeah, the, well, the White House heard about it before, and I'm sure you're gonna you and the others in your in biofuels industry will make sure they hear about it again. Hey, I wanted to ask you this, Jeff, while I have you. Uh, what about this proposal to basically replace the RFS with higher octane uh, levels? Uh, what are your thoughts on that approach? Well, we we did see uh, uh, Congressman Chimkus and 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 Flores. Uh, reintroduce a, a bill this week that they introduced last year at, at the end of the last Congress um, that would, uh, you know, eliminate the RFS in 2023 and effectively replace it with a, a higher octane gasoline requirement, a, a 95 Ron octane requirement is, is what it's called. 
Um, look, we, we, we love the idea of higher octane fuels. Uh, ethanol is the highest octane, lowest cost octane source on the, on the market today. It's all the, also the cleanest and best from a human health uh, standpoint. Um, so we, we do feel like the ethanol industry has much to gain from a higher, ethyl, or a higher octane requirement in our gasoline. Uh, however, you know, we're, we're concerned that this proposal uh, doesn't raise that octane level you know, high enough uh, to really capture the benefits of ethanol's octane. We think refiners could meet a 95 RON requirement uh, with more hydrocarbons, uh, more aromatics, things that are, that are bad for human health, um, and, and forego the use of, of, of using more ethanol. And we think they could probably meet that requirement with an E10-type gasoline, which is what we have in the marketplace today, without really using more ethanol. And so that's why the RFS remains important. Um, our position has been, great, let's do a higher octane requirement, absolutely. And if it's 95 RON, that's, that's an okay place to start. Let's do that on top of the RFS. There's no reason uh, to, to kill off uh, the, the demand floor uh, that the RFS gives us. Uh, let's put the 95 RON requirement on top of the RFS. Would, would, be, you know, would be supportive of that. Again, that is Mike's visit with Jeff Cooper of the Renewable Fuels Association, a coalition of renewable fuel and agricultural groups again, filing a petition yesterday afternoon with the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, challenging the process by which the EPA exempts certain unknown small refineries from their RFS obligations. Coming up next, we're going to talk about transparency in seed pricing. I'm Rusty Halverson, filling in for Mike Adams here on AOA. Adams on Agriculture, brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Cenex Premium Diesel, diesel that doesn't mess around. Mr. Chairman, as a corn root, I speak for millions of my kind who can't be here to defend themselves. Pests are stalking our stocks and undermining our roots. But we can elect to protect with a legacy of strength. Pancho Votivo 2.0 seed treatment system increases nearby microbial activity to help us grow stronger. That's smart. Ladies and gentlemen, please, this is a corn roots movement. Ask your BASF seed advisor about Pancho Votivo 2.0 seed treatment. Always read and follow label directions. Adams on Agriculture is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. With Cenex Premium Diesel, you can count on a diesel that will keep your operation in top shape. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Good morning, everybody. I'm Rusty Halverson, filling in for Mike Adams this week. U.S. companies said to be preparing for tensions with China to extend far beyond the status of the continuing trade negotiations. That, according to an executive for the U.S.-China Business Council earlier this week, China's state council saying on Wednesday the nation will step up imports of equipment, consumer, and agricultural goods as part of its efforts to stabilize foreign trade so another story that we continue to watch 
Again, I'm Rusty Halverson filling in for Mike Adams this week. Mike's regular show producer, Kirsten Rawl, does a lot of work behind the scenes for the show each week. In this segment today, Kirsten files a report about a story she's been working on regarding transparency in seed sales. The Farmers Business Network recently came out with a report that compared seed prices, highlighting the need for seed price transparency. Matt Mesner, head of data at FBN. Matt, what did you find in the report? I think what we found at the highest level that's really critical was really just the the magnitude of the difference in what two different growers can pay for the exact same product. So, for example, in the Dakotas, we have... Uh, in 2017, a, a popular corn variety that was sold from anywhere from 230 to $350 per bag. That's just an example, but that's a about 50% difference in seed price uh, between the high and the low prices paid for the exact same product. And if you look across seed companies, across varieties, across traits, you see the exact same thing where the difference in prices that people pay are, are really shockingly large. In some cases, 20, 30, 40, 50% difference uh, between two growers purchasing the exact same product, which understandably is a bit upsetting if you're the grower who realizes that you paid on the high end of that range when there was somebody who might have paid substantially less. So, you know, we knew that there would be price differences. I think it's, it's expected that different varieties will have different prices, different trade packages of different prices. All of that, I think, makes a lot of sense, but what's a lot harder to understand is really the the scale of price differences between the exact same products sold in the exact same area. Um, we also found substantial price differences by, if you look at it on a per bushel basis. So really the goal of this is to ask the question of, okay, price, prices for seed can vary by region, but are those price differences basically justified based on the difference in productivity across those different areas? Because one of the common reasons cited for differential pricing around the country is, is the fact that, you know, the seed provides more value in, in areas that are higher yielding. And unfortunately, uh, while that argument makes sense in principle, that's not often what happens in reality. So if you take a, you know, states like the Dakotas, which are, very, very important agricultural states, but not as high yielding per acre, for example, as the I states, um, you know, the yields are basically lower, but the seed prices are only a little bit lower. And that means that on a per bushel basis, farmers in the Dakotas are paying significantly more uh, than farmers in higher productivity areas of, you know, irrigating Nebraska and, and parts of uh, parts of the core corn belt. So I think that's another key takeaway is really the the, the cost of seed for your farming operation varies dramatically based on where you happen to farm. Let's talk about transparency and how that component plays in for producers. Yeah, so I think price transparency is something that we believe strongly should have access to when they're making important input decisions. I mean, these are not minor purchase decisions, right? If you're purchasing fertilizer or seed or chemical, these are some of your, your top input expenses every year. And if you don't know what a fair price is when you go to buy inputs, then then you sometimes people pay overpay dramatically, right? And that, that's really why growers sometimes pay more than they should for inputs is because with the lack of transparency, there's not the data readily available to know what's a good price and what's not. And it's obviously a very 
good situation for the person selling the product, right? Because they, they, they know whatever everybody paid and the grower only knows what, what he or she paid. And, and that is, uh, that puts the grower in a, in a very uncomfortable position where, where they're at an information disadvantage. But that's why we're so focused on using data to solve that problem. Do you have insight as to why those prices would vary? Yeah, so I mean, I can't claim to know the exact motivations behind the, the some of the industry's pricing practices. I mean, in my opinion, I would guess that you know a lot of the a lot of the, the variation in prices is I think very intentional because if as an input company selling products you don't have a published price, it, it gives you the ability to basically negotiate whatever price is the highest price you can with each grower. And, you know, when the when the seed company, for example, knows what all of their customers paid, but each individual customer only knows their individual price, that just, that, I think that's a very deliberate and very, um, uh, very, in some cases, savvy setup on, on their part because it gives them the the, the ability to, to, to charge different prices to, to different growers. And um, I think it's uh, it's unfortunate in our in our opinion because it, it really um, leads to some growers paying much more for the same product than, than others, which we don't think is a is really fair. If you're if you're buying the same thing in the same volume at the same time and the same treatment and everything else, it, it seems like um, it's it's only fair that you would pay the same price. I'm Kirsten Rawl for the American Ag Network. And again, Kirsten Rawl, the regular show producer for Mike Adams. We are filling in this week. I'm Rusty Halverson filling in for Mike, and I'd like to thank my producer this week, Sabrina Halverson. Also, like to thank our guests on today's show, Brian Winnikins from Durand, Wisconsin, an AOA affiliate at 14:30 a.m. Real Country, W-R-D-N. Also, our thanks today going going out to Ryan Corey, Director of Economics at Mercaris, talking about uh, some of the uh, challenges that organic growers are facing, much like their conventional cousins. A 12% year-over-year decline expected in organic corn production alone. It's been a great show today, folks. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back tomorrow. I am Rusty Halverson. Filling in for Mike Adams here on AOA.